this is probably the most diverse book written so far. And I mean, it does have the histories. Obviously, it has all the histories of great powers that you'll know about, you know, the Persian Empire or China or the Mongols, the Zulus, uh, you know, and so on, the Incas. But it also has lots of places that aren't enormously important, but are interesting, like, for example, Albania, the Maya, the Palmares slave kingdom of Brazil, and smaller places, Tibet, Cambodia, Hawaii, Haiti. Hello and welcome to this week's pod. My name is Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor of Aspects of History and your host. Today I'm speaking with Simon Seabag Montefiore. He's a distinguished historian and he's written fantastic histories such as Catherine the Great and Potemkin, Stalin, the Romanovs, as well as a quite brilliant biography of Jerusalem. He's one of Britain, if not the world's most distinguished historians and that's rather handy because his new book is A History of the World. It's called The World, A Family History. And the word family is key here. Simon has written this history through a familial lens. And so we get Alexander the Great's family, the Agiads. We get the Persian Achaemenids, the Habsburgs, Stuarts, Mohammeds or Hashemites. We get Genghis Khan and his family, Ottoman families, Hawaiian families, Zulus, Ghanaian and Inca, Aztec and Maya. And the thing is, it's written in such a way that I've raced through it. It's a wonderful book, and whilst reading, I can almost feel my brain filling with knowledge. In our chat, we cover all sorts. We both look at his writing the book as an overview, but also drill into a few more detailed areas, such as conspiracy theories behind the deaths of Alexander the Great and JFK, Iranian history of the 20th century and today, and Russian history, with the latest news of the Russians having looted the body of Prince Potemkin, the lover and chief minister of Catherine the Great. I've put links to both Simon and my Twitter accounts on the show notes. I recently added the trial of all time, that of Alexander the Great, who was charged with war crimes. So I've put a link in there too. And you can find out the verdict in that story. If you can, please do subscribe, but I'll hand you over to my chat with Simon Seabag Montefiore. Simon Seabag Montefiore, welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. Thank you. Well, great to be here and great to see you all of them. Well, it's, it's great to have you on because I've been um, rattling through your new book. Um, which, whilst not a short book, it is so easy to read, and I'm absolutely loving it. Um, but I, and it's a family history of the world. The title is "The World: A Family History," and I think what occurred to me was that um, it was a unique way of looking into world history uh, using the family. But then, as you as you think about it a little bit more, ultimately, ruling dynasties are the key to world history, really, aren't they? They are. I mean, it, it, in some ways, it's like, a, I mean, it's a bizarre thing. That, I mean, it's a bizarre thing that no one's done it before because it's quite an obvious thing to do. But obviously, um, the, the basic idea is exactly as you've, you've explained. I mean, world histories are sort of vast things with spans, uh, endless span of um, many millennia that cover, um, you know, uh, economic statistics and birth figures and, um, and trade, um, trade products. 
and often leave out, often don't have too much of the humans in it, in them. Um, biographies, which I've always written, um, are, are sometimes too intimate, too close. And, and I guess you kind of an example of that is like, you know, the recent biographies of Kissinger or Stalin or Churchill or, all, or, or, or US President US Grant are all longer than the, or the same length as the world, my world history, um, which covers uh, 15,000 years. And always, but the point is to combine the intimacy of biography with the span and diversity of world history. And you wrote this during lockdown, didn't you? Um, was I did, lo- yeah. That I made did. life difficult, presumably, writing it. Um, made it much easier. Um, and, it, oh. it helped, and it helpful because it also, I don't think I could ever have written it without, um, without lockdown. So, I, I mean, I came up with the idea of doing of doing this through families, and obviously some of them, as you said, are, are dynasties. Um, partly because they're the best kind of preserved, the most material on on dynasties, but also some of them are sort of aren't kings or rulers. Some of them are there are there are historians, there are doctors, there are artists, um, there are all sorts of people actually in these in, among these families. There are novelists. Um, but the point is that there also there's also there's two things really there's these kind of families where you look at you look at um, a heritage of some sort passed down through generations and often and often that they're a ruling dynasty but that we're also looking at the nuclear family which we all have whoever we are um, and that is also changing all the time so there's two there's always kind of two families but the point of it all is that this is a brilliant way to tether world history to make um, very complicated, difficult, faraway places, China, Hawaii, Cambodia, um, both accessible for both accessible for general readers. And these books are written for anyone. Um, you don't have to be a history buff to read them. Um, and but but also but also as a way to really get into the life and how life was really lived. Uh, one I'm glad you mentioned all the different um different parts of the world you've written about uh, because that's one thing that obviously if you're writing a world history you have to cover that but the, I was delighting delighting in reading about the Maya where I did archaeology when I was much younger um, oh, and you. something that very few people you know areas like that very few people know about um, and it's, it's it's written in such a way that really does draw draw you in. Um, well one of the points about this was I mean long before I mean Obviously, history has changed recently. And there's a sort of new, what I call a new history, which is, um, you know, anti-colonial and imperial, much more diverse, much more about women. I mean, it, it happened. I mean, it happened while I was writing this book. Really, in the last five years, it's really intensified. But actually, it always, all those things have, in their way, suited me all along. Ever since I dreamed of writing this book more than ten years ago, or even twenty years ago, and um, and you know, I always wanted to write a book about women with many more women in it. I found sort of male-based history kind of quite tedious. Um, and lo and behold, family is a way to do that. Uh, um, I always thought children were missing from books and history books. Well, this is a way, um, this is a way to do that too. And and then diversity. And you know, this is this is probably the most diverse book written so far. And I mean, it does have the histories. Obviously, it has all the histories of the great powers that you'll know about, you know, Persian Empire or China or the Mongols, the Zulus, uh, you know, and so on, the Incas. But it also has lots of places that aren't enormously important, 
that are interesting, like, for example, Albania, the Maya, the Palmares slave kingdom of Brazil, and smaller places, Tibet, Cambodia, Hawaii, Haiti. So that, that's one of the great joys of this book, I think. You know, whether I've done it well is another matter, but it does have material about these places that most people don't expect to read about in any history, um, yet alone a world history. And, and you've mentioned um, women. I mean, you can't have a world history on family without women. And women are just so key throughout, aren't they? And, yes. and that's what make this, makes it quite a rich book, because, it, as you say, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not just a male-based um, soldiers going into battle all the time. No, I mean, even, I mean, um, I mean, obviously, in modern times, there's a huge debate, which is kind of an interesting one. I mean, until very recently, until the Liz Truss premiership, <laughs> you know, people were still arguing in England that, that female leaders were always, you know, were, were sort of tended to be better than, than male leaders. And that's, I've seen that written many times. How many times have you seen on Twitter? Yeah. It written, you know, if only women were in charge, this wouldn't be happening. Um, that may be true, but um, but actually, women you'll see from this book, um, women are just as brilliant as men, and they are just as ruthless and brutal and and foolish as men too. And there are lots of examples of that in the book. I mean, it happens that family uh, families work in such a way that matriarchs, you know, female leaders, are hugely important. Uh, whether it's Catherine de Medici, who's a big character in the book now, and now. Drama on television, on on streaming drama somewhere on not not Netflix but somewhere. But um, you know there was a, you know most people don't realize with the Mongols one thinks it's such a macho empire. But you have people like Saul Kutani who is who who really dominated the Mongol Empire for 20, 30 years and was the most powerful woman in the world ever probably um, uh, until there's a, until there's a president of the United States or, or or a president of Russia who's a woman probably or China. Neither which seems to be happening quite yet. Um, uh, until then, I mean, she was probably the most powerful woman. You know, how many people have heard of her? And mm-hmm. um, oftentimes, these women are protecting uh, their, their widows or their mothers of sons whose who's, um, political uh, future they're protecting. Um, but nonetheless, they become incredibly important. There are some also who rule in their own right. Um, we have Catherine the Great in here, of course, and. Um, and uh, you know a lot of a lot of there was, a, there was a century of Russian female empresses, in which there were about five fascinating women, um, and I wrote about them in my Romanov Romanov's book. But there's also you know Margaret Thatcher, who I knew, um, you know Maria Theresa of Austria. Um, one of the most interesting is Kossem um, of the Ottoman Empire, who was a who was a contemporary of um, you know, Charles I and James I and, and and uh, and Cromwell, so you know a figure, a period that we feel we know terribly well. Most powerful, the most powerful person in the world was a woman then, and like we've never heard of her, she never mentioned, um, and she dominated the Ottoman Empire, which was then of course colossal and you know still a formidable power. Um, she dominated it for sort of thirty years. She had two sons were sultans. Her husband was a sultan, and she started. It's, it's interesting because of the, the interest today in slavery, which is very much reflected in the book, and not just Atlantic slavery, but uh, you know, Mediterranean slavery, Black Sea slavery, um, uh, East African slavery, Indian Ocean slavery, all of these are massive movements, 
um, movements of people by coercion. Um, but, you know, someone like Clausen, uh, again, similarly to um, Rox Roxolana, Hurem Sultan, who was the wife of Solomon the Magnificent, these women were literally kidnapped, um, you know, by slave traders uh, from their villages, some of them in Ukraine, some of them on Greek Island, some of them in Italy, some of them in Bosnia and, and Albania, and taken, sold from person to person until their beauty was noted and they were sold to the Sultan's harem. And in the harem, they could, some of them probably remained cleaners for their whole life and never were noticed by anyone, remained served. But some of them were spotted, introduced to the Sultan, had children with the Sultan. And if they were really clever and, and uh, events aligned in a certain way, they could become the empresses, which is quite a thought, because of course that couldn't happen with Atlantic slavery. You know, none of the, none of the, um, None of the women who were stolen from Africa by British or French uh, or Western European slave traders and taken to the Americas, none of them became emperors. No, you might, you might get taught to read and write, and that's, that's about the limit. You might um, get raped by your master. Mm. Um, but, you know, and they might be taught to read and write. You might have children by your master. You might be seduced by your master, as happened with Sally Hemming and the Hemming family. Um, who were the, the, the half sisters of Thomas Jefferson's wife, were very, were a fascinating family that I also go into. And so um, some of the families are, are far from ruling families in this book, some of them were enslaved families, but she, she, um, she became the lover um, of, of Thomas Jefferson when he was president and before, but started when he was ambassador. And she was a woman of color, um, who, who, as I said, was the half-sister, the enslaved half-sister of Mrs. Jefferson, which is quite an extraordinary, just an extraordinary thought, which tells you a lot about um, plantation, uh, plantation, colonial plantation society in America, um, which is just a fascinating subject, which we go into in the book. Mm-hmm. And and one one thing that I I, I was thinking when, when reading was that do you think it's worth changing? There's this sort of great man theory, isn't there? Um, but do you think now that should really be redefined as as, as a really kind of great family theory? I, you get a lot of uh, uh, huge empires built off the back of strong um, families. I mean, yeah, I mean maybe not right. stable, but strong. Yeah. Well, they often ask, I mean, the, the interesting thing is all of this is about stability. I mean, a large part of human enterprise, by which I mean um, creation of societies, creation of kingdoms, the creation of dynasties and democracies, um, is a sort of, is a crazy, as a quest for stability in a crazy, you know, unpredictable world, isn't it? I mean, it's not that, it's not that um, people don't also have a sort of craving for selfishness, a, a tendency to, to, towards selfishness and self, self-destruction as well. But a large part of human um, energy is, is spent on, on, on the quest for stability and dynasties provide that. Um, but dynasties are, also have their own conundrums and con- contradictions. Uh, but you're right. I like your I like your idea, and of course I I embrace it because that, that that's you know that's the that's a con- one of the concepts of this book. But you're also right. They create they create grave instability too because it's great when you have talented people. Um, but the trade off is is with continuity is that you often don't have particularly brilliant people 
um, taking power, and that they that then the thing can fall apart. Or you have systems like the Ottomans, um, the Chinese, even to a certain extent, the Chinese Empire, but certainly the, you know the Mongol Empire and the Turkic the Turkic empires, where you know um, rulers have lots of children with lots of women, and you know the idea is that the most the most the toughest, the most talented will kind of kill all the others, um, two more throne, they used to say, and kill all the others, and therefore be effect, another effective ruler for a long time, and that also did work. But the trade-off is when, you know, however talented the person that comes out of those wars, the wars themselves destroy the kingdom. And that's, of course, that's, of course, what happens to many of them. So related to that, I just wanted to delve into one particular, um, well, two, two particular killings mm. that I detected yeah. in your uh, narrative that you might have a suspicion that Alexander was involved in the killing of his father. Um, Philip yeah. II, um, and then s- fast forwarding again uh, to the two and a half thousand years, JFK, who you, you think probably was killed by Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah, I mean, you can never be sure of these things, and um, we'll probably, well, neither of them will we ever know any more than we know now. That's the likelihood. I mean, I put probably because. Um, well, one of, the, one of the big things about history, I think, is that, you know, recognising how little we know about people. I mean, we all know people in our own lives who we thought we knew and then we turned out we didn't, you know, to some extent. Um, when you know um, top politicians or rock stars or royalty or anyone sort of who's just vaguely famous now, you know that when you, what you read about them online and Twitter and on the, in the newspapers, is probably kind of 50% correct, maybe maybe less. Yeah, if that. And, yeah. and so you realise that when you look back hundreds of years, thousands of years, um, what you actually know is, is obviously you have to recognise that you don't know that much and that you could be wrong about a lot of things. And these are just examples where, you know, for example, you know, Alexander had the most to gain and he was most threatened by Philip's... Um, New, new changes, new wife, new children, all these sort of things. So it, it is likely that um, it is likely that that um, Alexander had assassinated him with the, possibly with the help of his mother Olympias. But but equally, you know, these Macedonian courts were incredibly messy, and the sexual politics of these courts was was much more messy than than politics today. Because you not only had an absolute monarch, you had a group. Um, all sort of, sort of, he was first among equals, amongst a group of sort of families who were all interconnected, with very macho, ambitious generals. And then you had his sort of new many wives and many children with, 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 with those many wives. And then you had a whole gay life, what we now call the gay life, which they just, they just thought of it was normal, which was he had a whole lot of male life. And all those Macedonian kings. Um, were constantly in danger of being assassinated by a disgruntled male lover as well. And that could easily have happened in this case because the assassin was a disgruntled male lover. And so he could just have been a jealous guy, you know. <laughs> and, and, that, and then, you bring, then you come to JFK, and again, from what we know, it was, it was, a, it was a single killer. All, all one would say about that, just looking at it, is like, it's a hell of a lucky shot. I mean, it was a hell of a good shot if you think about it. If you think about what, if Lee Harvey was the only assassin, it was an astonishingly successful 
Um, I, mean, I can't remember how many shots there were by actually fired, but it's, you know, I mean, he, he, by an assassin's go, he was pretty successful, wasn't he? So, so that's the only kind of, that's the only, um, that's the only sort of thing that makes one slightly suspicious is that, you know, quite, I mean, you, what chance do you have one shooter, you know, getting the president and you've got him twice in the throat and in the head? Anyway, but we'll never know now. No. No, but I'm so glad that um, that's in there it, because it's an important it's an important part. Um, yeah, now, definitely. Reading through the book, it seems that there's there's one family that is still in power today and is could therefore be argued as the most successful, and that being the Hashemites. Is is which do you yeah. think is? I mean, it's probably difficult to name one most successful family. No, no, the Muhammad family, the Muhammad family, the family of the Prophet Muhammad is definitely the most powerful and, and the most successful ruling family of all time because today they still rule in Jordan which is not a very impressive um kingdom but you know they did they did rule they were kind of when they ruled they started off just ruling a small area in in the sort of um in 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 the the, the late in the sixth century the late sixth century they started off as a clan just ruling Mecca and then they and then of course you know out of that family the Quraysh um, tribe came the prophet Muhammad himself. He created a um, he created a state. He was a he was both he was a military and theocratic. Uh, he was a military theocrat. I mean, he created a state which one so often doesn't realize when one, unless one sort of reads up the history. He created a state in Arabia by uniting many different tribes and peoples and religions there. Um, and you know, apart from um, his other his other qualities. I mean, he was obviously a very successful political leader and military leader, and and his family, um, well, you know, um, produced you know produced great one well, of the greatest empire of its day, which was which was the Arab Empire, um, starting really to just after his death in sixteen you know in the six thirties, and um, you know they. They very nearly, they very nearly took Constantinople, but they took, they brought down the Persian Empire, um, and um, they soon ruled an empire that, that was extended from the Atlantic, you know, from Spain to the border of China. So it's just one of the most massive empires, and that was his family that ruled those empires, whether through um, the Umayyads, the Abbasids, the Fatimids, who claimed to be descended from probably were. Um, and then, you know, and then branches of that family ruled on for centuries and centuries afterwards. So, yeah, the, the, the book is dominated by fascinating families. I mean, some we kind of we feel we know well, the Habsburgs, for example, so pretty much a thousand years of European history. Um, the Romanovs, just 300. Um, you know, the British royal family, in one way or another, lasted a long time, but ceased to be, ceased to be politically significant, um, you know, really in the, really in the sort of 1830s. So, um, and then it's less interesting to me to cover. But you know, the, obviously the, the Mongol family is very. You know, the Mongol family of Genghis Khan is also the, is the other huge family, and they have a sort of kingdom in Bukhara, you know, which is a tiny kingdom, a bit like Jordan. That they rule that until 1920, the offshoots of the family. But one should say in all of this that you know, if you were a geneticist, and I've talked to Adam rather well for another geneticist, I mean. Family is a is a social construct. You know, it, it it doesn't it doesn't really exist in science as we as we think of it. I mean, 
first of all, there's the tradition that you, you know, the, the eldest son and the males keep the name, but women are obviously their sort of descent is lots, but they don't keep the name, which is kind of interesting. Um, and virtually all, um, and virtually all sort of royal descent goes to the male first, um, prioritized. And then if not, if there's no male and five are female, but so, so the, the very concept of family is a sort of political construct anyway, um, really designed to keep property together, to pass on power and property. Um, and of course, you know, the way, the way genetics works, I mean, the whole of Asia is, tens of millions of people in Asia are descended from Genghis Khan himself, who on his, on his conquest um, had the pick of women as he, as he went, and, you know, they were trophies of war, they were, they were, there were mass rapes, and geneticists presume that the person who was in every, every who, who was in every place for the most children was probably Genghis Khan. So that's quite a thought. But similarly in England, you know, you know, a large proportion of the country descended from the children of Edward III. He had a lot of children. And, and so there comes a time when everybody is descended from common ancestors. And so the family thing is a construct. And one's got to realize that when, when reading this, this sort of book or writing about dynasties. There's no purity in blood at all. Everything is hybridity. I wanted to get on to contemporary events. Um, I'm very interested in your coverage of, of uh, Iran uh, um, throughout the book, actually. Yeah. Um, this is particularly interesting to me. My wife is Iranian. And so... Uh, I wanted to talk about Mohammad Reza Shah, um, who I, I think you have a lot of sympathy for in the book. Yeah. Um, but in Iran, his, certainly his overthrow is, is a complicated affair. But going before that to Operation Ajax, which was the overthrow of Mossadegh in 53, 1953, yeah. Iranians, generally speaking, and I'm, um, I'm sure I'm not covering everyone, but generally view this as sort of a British-American plot that was overthrowing a democratically elected Masada, who himself is part of a, a, a Qajar dynasty that ruled Iran yes, um, yeah. in the previous century. Yeah. And so I, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about Mohammad Reza Shah and, and your view of but he's him. A fascinating, but he's a fascinating character. Um, you know, one of the great challenges of writing this sort of history, um, one is like throughout the book, I try and just look at kind of things that are completely regarded as conventional wisdom that everyone accepts and just look at them and say, is it true? I mean, for example, the Middle East, um, it's, it's kind of every single history book and history books keep reappearing, reappearing, I've been saying, saying that Britain and France appallingly mishandled the Middle East and were to blame for everything that happened there. Um, but obviously in the world history, you look at it and you say, actually, you know, the Ottomans ruled it for three, over 300 years. Um, they must, you know, one, must, one has to look at what happened in the Ottoman Empire to also to understand the present Middle East. And it's certainly true, as I know from my studying Jerusalem carefully, but you know, the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East was appallingly mismanaged for, for centuries. And that the Ottomans really lost interest in, you know, improving their empire after 100 years. And then it became an enormously mismanaged empire that really kind of hollowed out the society in the Arab world. And has to be one of the factors that, that, are, to, that, that are to blame or contributing factor to, to the state of the Arab world today. So all the time I'm looking at these 
things. Just look, just trying to step back and look. That's the whole point of world history. And also for being a sort of historian who doesn't want to accept, as I said, con conventional wisdoms without any kind of analysis and just accept it. Now, Iran is a classic example. I mean, the other, the other thing that, is, that this book does everywhere is just tries to challenge those things and tries to avoid what I call sequencism, uh, which is sort of teleology, meaning that because someone was overthrown, you kind of you kind of write their whole um, their whole history as if they were already at failure. I mean, another classic example is Napoleon III. You know, who for sort of for over twenty years was the most probably the most successful statesman in Europe, and yet because he was overthrown through a series of appalling decisions after twenty-two years in power, is always written about as a kind of doomed joke. And um, you know, and so. And so one has to look at these things. I mean, another example is um, Darius, who the Darius the Third, who fought, um, who fought Alexander, the Darius that fought Alexander, who again is always regarded as disaster, but actually had been a very successful. If you look at his career and and his early rule, you know, he'd stabilised the um, Persian Empire, and and had a very successful military career as a commander beforehand. And if Alexander hadn't come along. You know, the likelihood is that he would have re re, you know, re-stabilized the Persian Empire, which could have lasted indefinitely. You know, um, so all along, I'm just trying to avoid writing things backwards. So with Reza Shah, the Shah, um, you know, what, first of all, Operation Ajax and his the Mossadegh, the coup against Mossadegh. It's clear I've, I've read everything about that that's been written in English, and it's just always been clear to me that this is like there's an interesting thing going on in. Um, I mean, obviously, it fitted so many people well to um, all the, for the nationalists and anti Shah. It fitted brilliantly to say that this was always a British and American coup, um, and he was just put there as a puppet. Even though his actions in his, his rule kind of show that was really likely to be true, um, but also obviously for the Americans, it was an exciting. The CIA was a brilliant story to tell because it showed that it, it, it added to their mystique of incredible power. Um, you know, this is not to deny for a second that the Shah was a, a um, ultimately a catastrophic failed ruler and an, and an autocrat who had a huge secret police that um, was responsible for torturing um, dissidents and so on and so forth. Um, but so in the, in the coup, when you look at it closely, even when you look at the story of Kim Roosevelt, Kim Roosevelt, for example, I mean, in his own story, it turns out he never spent any of the money he was given. And he spent a tiny amount of the huge sum he was given to launch a coup in Iran. And, um, and he himself says he just gave the rest, you know, to he, he didn't use it. So, um, and you only have to look at what was happening in the regime, um, the Mossadegh regime, to see that his, the Mossadegh um, coalition was falling apart. And, and I specify in the book how that worked. You know, there were the Ayatollahs, there were different, there was a communist party. There were different, he put together a sort of, a sort of coalition. And the more power he, he amassed, he needed to amass, the more he offended different parts of it. Um, which, you know, which is what happens in politics everywhere, of course. And so, so, you know, again, it's something we'll probably never know. But yes, the British and Americans were plotting a coup. And, but it's pretty clear that the coup that succeeded wasn't the coup that they were backing, and happened happened in spite of them all parallel to them. And I know that there are lots of these. The, the intelligence officers in their eighties keep coming forward to say they arranged it, 
And that's all very exciting. And there are people make films about this. But actually, these are just old men. The actual, the actual proof is, is lacking. And we, we probably won't know who could exactly contributed to destabilize Mossadegh, except to say that there are many, many um, parts of the Iranian society that were turning against Mossadegh by the time he was overthrown. And that, of course, yes, Britain, the British and the Americans contributed to it. But as for the, as for the reign of, of the Shah, you know, much of what he was trying to do was exactly what um, Western, Western Ameri- Anglo-Americans have tried to do in many countries, to encourage civil society, to free women. Um, many of the things, much of his program um, to give land, land reform, um, much of it was, were reforms that, um, that made sense for Iran, that should have worked, that should have improved people's lives. They didn't because of grotesque um, corruption in, in his regime. And the fact that it also, you know, was a one-man regime and had all the faults of that man, um, you know. But actually, he was clearly a bit like Napoleon, but he was clearly, probably clearly a, a highly skilled, um, highly paranoid uh, statesman um, who failed, who failed to deliver. And yes, he became absolutely hated and, um, and failed to stabilise his regime, failed to broaden um, to broaden it, and and was therefore overthrown in a, what has to be described as a pretty as a hugely popular revolution. Um, what came after was um, catastrophic, a million times worse. And the the, the, the sort of the, the metaphor, the parallel that occurs to me is between Nicholas II and um, and Stalin. You know, Nicholas II and, um, and Nicholas II. Uh, I don't mean Nicholas II was a talented ruler. He really had no talent at all. The Shah was an extremely gifted statesman who dominated the Middle East for 20 years, which is quite something to do. Um, the, the, the Nicholas II was, was really, was really um, an appalling, a, a appallingly foolish ruler. Um, but what I mean by that is that, you know, the, the sort of crimes of the Tsarist regime were just tiny compared with the crimes of Stalin that came after and the tens of millions killed. And, you know, it, it now seems, you know, the, the sort of hatred for the Shah, which survived. And in, 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 yes, we know the Shah was a, was a dictator who used repression to stay in power, but really there's no comparison between the dictatorship that's there now uh, of, the, um, of, the, of the Ayatollahs. And, um, and, you know, I mean, it's one of the most repressive regimes. Um, it's, and, the strange thing about the Iran regime today is that it's it's a dictatorship. It's it's really like a sort of hereditary monarchy, um, a hereditary autocracy. Um, uh, except it's not hereditary; it's appointed by a tiny group of people. Um, and there have only been two dictators since since nineteen seventy nine: Khomeini and Khomeini. Khomeini, um, and um, you know. They will do anything to stay in power. Extremely brutal regime, as you can see today, what's happening today. Um, but I'm fascinated with Iran and Persia, and uh, yeah, that, it's a huge part of the book. It's devoted to Persia. We've seen with Amasa Amini's um, demonstrations yeah. today. Yeah, that's that's happening as we speak. I think. Yes, it is. Yeah, it is, and it's you know, and, and hopefully they they will bring down a regime which is, which I mean, it's impossible to quantify these by the number of people killed or tortured or whatever it's, and actually that and they're willing the to right. kill 
as yeah. many as it takes, yeah. aren't they? But they're willing to do anything. And they have an absolute... I mean, these, these governments, these regimes, as we're seeing also in Putin's Russia, are very hard to overthrow. Very hard to overthrow these regimes when they have these massive security apparatuses. And to go back to, to, go back to Nicholas II, you know, he won, he won the 1905 revolution, didn't fall out because he had the guards regiments um, of the army, which were the elite regiments that were completely loyal to the Romanov regime and had been created as a Praetorian guard by Peter the Great. And, and the reason why 1917 worked and he did the fall was because he'd lost the virtually the entire guards regiments in the Brusilov offensive in 1916, and he didn't have a reliable army anymore. So, um, so you know, these security apparatuses, such as exist in the Revolutionary Guards and, and, and all these other um, religious morality police and so on, mean that it's extremely hard to overthrow this regime and they will do anything to, to, um, to survive. And it will really only fall when those, when for some, something turns that makes those security forces start to defect. And, but I mean, the days are numbered of this regime. I mean, even if it, it, it may last, it may last many years more. But in the but we've now seen that there really is deep, there are deep fissures within it, and and it's one of the most it's one of the most evil regimes in the world. It's going to be a wonderful thing when it falls. It certainly will be. Um, another regime, which again we've got some a lot of news happening today, and you've just mentioned to me. Um, the Russians have stolen the body of Potemkin, who was the subject of your first history book. Is that right? Yes, it was. Yeah, Catherine the Great and Potemkin. Um, and I, you know, I went. I mean, I went to Pearson, which is which is where his tomb was. Um, when I was writing that book, I I sort of chased I chased around Eastern Europe looking for bits of his body because um, all of his, his heart is. In his viscera, they call it technically. His, his heart is viscera and his bones were all put in different places. And um, so I was sort of, um, I went around the place looking for them. And it was actually a very fascinating trip, which took me through um, Russia, Ukraine, Moldova, Romania, um, to collect all the parts of, of um, Prince Potemkin. But, you know, but it's a very fascinating thing. I mean, Prince Potemkin is, a, is someone who's very fascinating to Putin and always has been. When I wrote that book, I was approached by people in his, in his apparatus in the Kremlin to write sort of memos about it and talk to him about it. And when George W. Bush visited, um, this is in 2000, I think, when he visited Petersburg, um, he talked to Putin about Potemkin and Putin talked to him about it. So, um, and it was because of that book, because Putin liked that book, that I got access to Stalin's archives, um, first of all. So, this is kind of interesting information. This is just fresh off, fresh off the news now. I mean, what they've done is they've taken the body of Prince Potemkin back, presumably because they're going to lose Kherson now. I mean, Potemkin's such a fascinating figure because, you know, he conquered South Ukraine between 1783, between 1774 and, and 91. He conquered what is now South Ukraine and Crimea. And he built all those cities that we're now reading about. You know, Dnipro, Mariupol, Sebastopol, the great naval base in Crimea, um, Odessa, he ordered just before he died, um, uh, and of course, Kherson and Nikol Nikolaya, two huge ports, um, shipbuilding cities. Um, he built all these cities and founded them from nothing. 
and um, he founded New Russia. Uh, so, in a sense, um, you know, he's a, you know, he, he's very much part of the history of this story. Now, one thing that you've been working on, um, as uh, whilst working on the book, is a playlist to go with the book. Um, and I was perusing it earlier, and there's loads of great stuff on there. Uh, I think that if you had to pick a title song, it would probably be the first on the playlist, wouldn't it? Well, I think what I what I wanted to do was when I was writing the book, I'm one of those people who doesn't write in silence, but writes with very loud music going on. But because because it was um it was long it was a long lockdown, I was on my own in my office, this office. And um, and I just sort of listened. To, I thought it was fun to listen to history music, and so I started sort of writing, making lists of history history music to listen to. Um, so, for example, when I was writing about the dropping of the first nuclear bomb, I listened to Enola Gay by um, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. And um, so then I thought, actually, you know, all books these days should have should have soundtracks because you know, we've got Spotify. So I created the, the soundtrack to the world, my, my book, The World, and it's on Spotify, and you, and you should listen to it, everybody. And um, many, Dan Snow and other historians, Simon Sharma and um, Dan Jones, and a whole lot of um, very distinguished Olivetta Pelli, all, all these people um, suggested songs, and there was a sort of Twitter, um, sort of rather exciting Twitter, um, uh, sort of avalanche of people suggesting the music. So now we have this huge playlist which has all the great songs that are either sort of all, uh, either so timely that they're part of history or all, all great events happened, um, you know, while using them as a sort of theme song. And there are songs from Persia, from Iran right now, and from the Arab Spring um, as well as things like um, Winter Change, which was the, the song of the fall of the Berlin Wall. By the Scorpions. So, the, so I put together this playlist, and yeah, I mean, it's sort of in a started off in a sort of order. And so, I think I say in the book, the book has lots of musicians in it, hasn't it? Yeah. And the Stones and, and Sinatra, and it starts off. And the number one is Sympathy of the Devil, mm. of the Devil by the Rolling Stones, because I think first of all, it's got all sorts of history in it from the 20th century, but I think it's so clever the way um, you know. I mean, the words are absolutely brilliant, first of all. Not all song lyrics are good. Um, uh, but also, it's just, it's just refers to all the sort of monstrous things that happen in the 20th century from the point of view of, of the devil. And it's the devil singing the song. But there are lots of others. Um, I mean, I think, you know, I think Rasputin by Boney Ann is obviously an amazing song. Um, and they, you know, in, in its... I actually think it's a masterpiece because it's you know it does describe what's happening in you know um early 20th century the russian court in the early 20th century which is extraordinary it's historically accurate is it well pretty <laughs> it's sort of accurate i don't think i don't think um, rasputin ever slept with alexandra but he certainly slept with a lot of people as it says in this it says so in the song but i don't think that's accurate but russia's greatest um, machine it's definitely yeah. one it's one of the greats, great lovers, great, yeah, Russia's greatest love machine. But there are lots of other songs from, you know, I mean, um, virtually every historical, um, many historical events have come in, in pop songs. And so I had a sort of quest to see, you know, which, which was the greatest. And I think, I, as I said, it's simply the devil actually in the book as, as, as the best history song. But I'm willing to be, um, had to, to listen to any suggestions. If you have any, Oliver, you know, please let me know. I will, I will, I will. 
Um, well, that's a great way to end it. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll send you some suggestions um, do. later. Do. Anyone else who's got any, please let me know. I'll put them on. Brilliant. Well, really nice to talk with you, and, I, and I'm a great admirer of aspects of history, so thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, since we've talked about the soundtrack to Simon's world history, I've put the link to that Spotify playlist in the show notes. I have a few editions of my own, which I'll put on the Twitter. Crusader by Christerberg, about the attack on Jerusalem by Richard the Lionheart, Straight to the Man by the Stone Roses, a song from their second and final album about British colonialism, and Hail to the Thief by Radiohead, about George W. Bush's electoral victory of 2000. If you've got some of your own, let me know via the Twitter or drop me an email at history at aspectsofhistory.com. Links are in the show notes. Looking ahead, there's plenty more great content coming up, including the Nazi-Soviet Pact of 1939 with Roger Morehouse. He's a big friend of the show and my first ever guest on my first ever episode. The Paratroopers during the World War II with Newsnight presenter Mark Urban and US Marines in the Pacific with Saul David, as well as much, much more. So I do hope you can join me and please do subscribe. Thank you and good night. Thank you.